Well, good morning, family. Uh, worship team, thank you for this morning. Uh, Kaya and Chandler, thank you for your words at communion. That was wonderful. Uh, it's so great to be here with you all this morning. We're going to be continuing our series, Who I Am, looking at the character and nature of God and who we should be as image bearers in response to who God is. And this is really one of the most important series that we could be talking about in our mission statement. The first thing that it says is to love God. We want to be a church that loves God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And lately we've been in Exodus 34 looking at what God has said about God's own character. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it says, And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This passage is super important because this is the most referenced chunk of scripture by the rest of the Bible. It is one of the things that people keep coming back to. Ancient Israelites saying, remember, this is what our God is like. Remember, this is what our God is like. So last week, Darren... He was great, wasn't he? He had uh, really good words for us about God's compassion. But it's really hard. I kind of gave him a hard task to talk about God's compassion without stepping too much into gracious. Because these two things in Scripture are coupled together all the time, that God is compassionate and gracious. In Hebrew, even, it sounds like they were made to be stuck together. I'm going to have you all repeat after me as I say this. Rachum vechanum. That's about how I expected that to go. But it even, it even sounds like it has this sort of cadence to it, this, this rhythm, this flow that's supposed to be together. And actually, these two words together, at least from what I was looking at, they're coupled together at least 11 times in the Old Testament, and all of which are referencing the character of God. It is really, really important. And it's so crucial that God first, the first words out of his mouth are this. Growing up, I used to watch American Idol. I stopped watching it about 10 years ago. But there's a judge on American Idol named Simon Cowell. And I think he's still judging on other shows, but I haven't paid attention to it. But Simon is known to be this harsh, crude, mean sort of critic towards people. And he says some really inventive and like harsh, cruel insults. I don't know how he comes up with some of them. For example, he said, I think every cat in New York City just died listening to you sing. Or, I don't mean to be rude, but you might possibly be the worst singer I've ever heard. Okay, well, that's kind of rude. And also, this one's also very creative. He told somebody one time, do you have a lawyer? And they said, no. And then he said, well, you might want to hire one to sue the person that told you you were good. Like, just like cruel, cruel stuff. But sometimes I think we might think that God is kind of like Simon Cowell. That God is somebody who has his arms crossed and ready to tear into us the moment that we make a mistake. And growing up, I often felt that way about God. And if I'm being totally honest with you, sometimes I still do. That comes back into my heart. I know in my head, I know in my head God is not like that. But it's taken my whole life to let that sort of transfer into my heart for me to actually believe it. And I'm not there yet. There's still a lot more growing in that I need to do. And a Simon Cowell kind of God is one that the ancient world really knew. 
There's a whole bunch of references to other gods throughout the time of Israel. If you look at the surrounding gods, they were really mean. They were more like a Simon Cowell. One example is in Homer's The Iliad. He talks about the Trojan War. And the Greek king Agamemnon, he's sailing across the Mediterranean. And there comes a point where his fleet stops because there's no more wind anymore. And we see a little bit as to why that's happening. And it says in the Iliad, uh, because Artemis, the goddess of Greece, is angry. She's always angry. She demands that he make a brutal sacrifice. His daughter, uh, that name, um, y'all can pronounce that. I'm going to spare what happens, the details after this, because it gets pretty gruesome. But this is the sort of character that we see in the gods all around the nation of Israel. And this was actually, even though Homer wrote this in the 7th century BC, the time that this would have taken place was around the exact time that Yahweh was revealing himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. This makes what we read here in knowing what the other cultures were like, makes what we see in the character of our God so much more stark in contrast. God's first words to describe himself are compassionate and gracious. We don't have a Simon Cowell, we don't have an Artemis sitting on the throne of the universe. We have a loving father who's turned towards us and delights in us even in spite of our mistakes. And that feels too good to be true. Like we're taught from a young age, don't believe something that sounds too good to be true. But this is true. And this makes it even more good that our creator looks at us in spite of our sin with delight. And this feeds into the next thing we see God describe about himself in Exodus 34, 6, that God is slow to anger. The Hebrew here is so cool. The word slow and anger, it literally means long of nostrils. Hebrew, there's just nice little nuggets of wisdom, right, that we get. But if you think about what happens whenever we get angry, right, it looks a lot like this. Our nostrils start to flare. A lot of times we have to do this deep breathing like, like to hold in the anger that we have. So whenever God is described as long of nostril, what it means is God is able to breathe in a lot more than what we can. God has such a higher threshold before he acts upon his anger than what we do. We, on the other hand, we barely have a threshold, right? We have tiny nostrils. We're ready to tear into somebody the moment they inconvenience us in a, in a small little way. For example, um, one example of my short temper, whenever the Chiefs were playing in the Super Bowl against the 49ers, I'm a huge Chiefs fan, by the way. Sorry if that's a deal breaker. I didn't, I didn't reveal that until now. Ha <laughs> um, ha! But uh, as the Chiefs were playing in the Super Bowl, they were down to the 49ers in the fourth quarter, and we were just looking so bad, and I, I felt awful. And there was one point where I walked over to our door, and I just headbutted it. <laughs> I wasn't like so hard that it gave me a concussion or anything, but it was just one of those moments where I was like, why did I just do that? <laughs> like, why do, I, why do I think that anything that I'm doing is even affecting this team? And why is what they're doing affecting me? Doesn't make sense. But we all, we all have short fuses. I mean, we can get angry really quick. I mean, dr just driving Nashville's traffic. Like, man, that brings it out real fast, right? We have the tiniest of nostrils during those moments. Or whenever uh, we see or are dealing with somebody who we feel is incompetent. 
or they're wasting our time, or they're not valuing um, our service. We can get really angry, and all the time, it typically deals with our own ego, or something that is selfishly benefiting me. But God's long nostrils, it means that he is patient beyond what we can even imagine. And that is part of how God's able to be compassionate and gracious because he is slow to anger, because he has this sort of patience. It's like how if you're a parent, you have to deal a lot with your kids making mistakes as they're learning. And you have to be really patient or else you're going to drive yourself up a wall, right? You need to be patient with your kids as they're learning. And that's kind of the same way that God is with us. He's patient towards us. And I think the best story that demonstrates God's gracious patient nature is the prodigal son story and Darren talked about this a little bit last week and next spring we are going to dive into this deeply and uh, it's it's going to be awesome but basically Jesus says you want to know who Abba is not the singing group but my loving father you want to know what he's like imagine you go up to your father and say I wish you were dead give me my money now and then Your father's gracious enough to give you that money, and then you go and you blow it on all the things exactly your father tells you not to do. So parties, sinful pleasures, whatever it is, you blow it all, you hit rock bottom, and you think maybe, just maybe, I know, I know the character of my father, I know he might take me back if I say, hey, just, I'll be a servant. And then as you come back, the father runs from a long way off and embraces you. He doesn't punish you. He doesn't yell at you. He doesn't get angry with you. He throws a party. Why on earth would God meet our evil with a party? Why would he repay us that whenever we don't deserve it? That doesn't seem right. And I'm sure many of us have a hard time believing that the Father could actually be that gracious, could actually be that loving towards us. But this isn't some new invention with Jesus. He didn't just come up with this in the New Testament. From the opening pages of Scripture to the final pages, this is the character of God. God is one who is compassionate and gracious. One of my favorite psalms, this actually probably is my favorite psalm, Psalm 103. I was just talking with Gene about this this morning. Psalm 103 is such an amazing Scripture, and I'd like to think that this has kind of informed uh, some of Jesus' telling of the prodigal son story says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's a direct quote from Exodus 34. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. That sounds like a dig directly at Artemis, (laughs) right? Artemis, the God who's always angry. That's not our God. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He does not give us what we deserve, like what we see in the prodigal son story. He repays our wickedness with kindness and grace. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. If you can imagine God crumpling up our sins and just chucking it into outer space, it's that far away from us. Or to our high school students, he yeeted it into the atmosphere. Some of you all probably have no idea what that means. That's okay. It's the same thing. God is removing our sins a great distance from where we are. And it says, I love this last line, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I'm not a parent, 
But for those of you who are parents, think about how much you delight in your own kids. How much you look at them and you see that they are so precious. And you love them with all their heart. God feels that way about you. But it's amplified. And that's hard for us to really believe sometimes. Maybe we don't feel that way about ourselves. And that makes it hard. Maybe we think, man, if I know God knows everything. He knows what I did. There is no possible way he can still love me knowing what I've done. And there's definitely no way I can tell anybody else and they still love me after knowing what I've done. It's not true. We can be our own worst enemy sometimes. Sometimes we have Simon Cowell living in our brain. Maybe it's hard for you, though, because maybe you had a parent or both parents who were more like a Simon Cowell than Yahweh. Someone who wasn't compassionate and gracious. Someone who was angry and, and super critical. And if so, I'm so sorry. Because it was never meant to be that way. We were supposed to have good examples in our parents. People who loved us much like God loves us. But maybe this is why God revealed himself as father or in parental ways. And in some cases in scripture, you see him portrayed as a mama bear. Someone who's fighting to protect her cubs or you see God as, or Jesus talks about a mother hen, how he wishes he could be like a hen and bring in the chicks back to, back to himself. That's, that's kind of the metaphor that we see with God. Because God, I think, knew how much of a shortage of good parents there would be in this world. So he reveals himself as a parent to us. So even if, please hear this, even if you've had parents in your life, who have been more like Simon Cowell, know this, your true father delights in you. He has compassion for you. He is so for you. You can't even begin to understand how for you he is. And he is inviting you into a loving, eternal family. And God is offering full forgiveness as an unearned gift. As much as we try to earn our salvation and earn favor from God, we can't do it. Sometimes you think maybe if I do more good deeds than bad deeds, God's going to look past my bad stuff and then I'll, I'll maybe make it. Or we compare ourselves with our friends and it's like, I know them, I know they're not getting in, so I have a much better chance. Like, we do these sorts of things, but works-based salvation is not how salvation works. This is one of the main things that separates Christianity from every other living world religion. And a lot of Eastern religions, you try to do enough good deeds to build up good karma, so that you can have a better life in the next life, and then a better life in the next life to hopefully escape the cycle of reincarnation. And that's all based upon your good works. In Islam, you have to complete the five pillars of Islam. And even if you do that, you only have a chance of salvation. At the end, you're going to be weighed your good deeds and bad deeds, and if your good deeds outweigh them, then you'll make it, maybe. But that's not how this works. <laughs> In Christianity, as much as we try to make it that way, as much as we try to make it about works, we might say something like the five steps of salvation. We might say you pray a specific prayer into your heart. And I'm not saying any of those are necessarily bad. I think those all have merit and they're good. But if you boil it down, what is actually necessary for salvation? If you boil everything down to its foundational roots, what's necessary in the Christian view is a gracious God. That is what is necessary. Because there is nothing, not a single thing that we can do to repay him 
The fact that we are even alive right now is a gift. And we can't earn anything because everything is a gift. As much as we think that we've pulled ourselves up from our bootstraps, we would not be where we are today without God's grace and God looking after us. And thinking we can earn our salvation, it's like a murderer thinking he can get off the hook by buying Girl Scout cookies out of charity. But really, we know they bought it for the Thin Mints, right? <laughs> but we can't, we can't be doing this stuff with thinking our, our deeds outweigh things. And Jesus makes God's standard very clear. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yikes. <laughs> well, well, we missed that boat a long time ago, right? But this is such good news because it means that it can't possibly be by good works that we make it in. If this is God's standard, we're all toast, right? Our salvation is not based upon us. It is based upon God's character. It's based upon what Jesus did, not based upon what I've done or will do in the future. God's grace is sufficient, period. It's not sufficient with a side of works. God's grace is sufficient for you, and it's a free gift, and we just have to say yes. And that's not to say, all that's to say, that's not to say that works will not come. Works are an important part of the Christian life. But works come as a response to God's grace. I can't believe that God is this good. I'm going to give everything for him. That's where the works comes. As Dallas Willard says, he says, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace doesn't mean we just go around and do whatever we want. Paul makes that very clear. But what this does say about grace, uh, what it means is we don't have to feel this anxiety about whether we have done enough to make it, because we haven't. It's all based upon God's character. One of the senior saints at a church that I was at in the past, he's now with the Lord, but I remember him saying this to me and it stuck. He just kept saying, I just hope I've done enough to make it in. I just hope I've done enough to make it in. And I just looked at him and smiled. I said, you haven't. <laughs> and that's the best possible news. Because there's nothing we can do to repay him. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Our salvation is based on a perfect, gracious God. In Micah 7, 18, it says that you do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. And it's not that whenever God forgives us, it's not like he's just putting up with us. Like, yeah, I guess I'll show grace. God delights in it. As if he's walking around every day just smiling, excited to see how he can show mercy to people. That is fascinating. <laughs> that's, not, that's not how we think about it a lot of times. God is that good shepherd that leaves the 99 for that one lost sheep. And in any other business or organization, 99% success rate. Like, we'd sign off on that in a heartbeat, right? But God's math is not our math. God is not satisfied with 99%. If you were that one sheep, that is away. Because God is coming after you. He will always run after you. Even if you run a million steps in the wrong direction, God is still one step behind you because he's been pursuing you this whole time. And he loves you tremendously. And why is that? Because our God is compassionate and gracious. And boy, does he have some long nostrils too. So what does this teach us as image bearers? How can we learn from God's grace and patience? The first thing is trust in God's grace for you. 
It's easy to believe that what we have done has made us unsavable or has made it to where God doesn't want to be with us anymore. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to think. Because the moment we start believing this stuff, we start getting sidelined for real kingdom work. We're petrified. We're so afraid to move, we just don't move. And we pursue safety and comfort. But let this sink in from Hebrews 10, 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Let's, let's break that down for a second, just so there's no room for misinterpretation on this. For by one sacrifice, that sacrifice was Jesus 2,000 years ago. He has made perfect forever. As far as we look into the future, forever, those who are being made holy. Who is that? Those who are being sanctified. Those who have the Holy Spirit. Those who might stumble from time to time. He has made perfect forever those being made holy, a.k.a. us. That is crazy. <laughs> that God is making us perfect forever, regardless of the stuff that we're going to do in the future. That's how much God's grace covers. And if we think that there is a sin or some stumbling of ours that is going to be more powerful than the sacrifice of Jesus, how important do we think we are? God's grace is sufficient. And also, God demonstrates he wants to be with us in giving us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I don't think God would avoid, uh, would want to be with us if he had this view that, oh, if you're so sinful, I don't want to be anywhere near you. If he gives us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, God's dwelling in us shows us how much he wants to be with us in spite of our mess. So trust this, God's grace is sufficient for you. Yes, even you. So let's live into that and then share that good news with others. The second thing, we need to extend more grace and patience to other people. Because it's really easy. We walk into a room and we feel like we understand the whole situation, right? We think we understand why someone is the way that they are. We make up maybe false narratives about what made them to be the way they are. And we feel like we have the full understanding of all things. But that is very untrue. Everybody has an understory. Everyone has something that has gone on in their lives that have made them the person that they are. And we don't know those things until we enter into conversation with them. So we can't be coming in with these preconceived notions. I heard this story from Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, where there's a father who's sitting on a subway, and Stephen is also on the subway, and these kids are running around going crazy messing with other people, messing with the newspapers in their hands, and Stephen couldn't take it anymore, so he leans over to this guy and says, hey, can you control your kids? Like, they're, they're kind of getting crazy. And this is what the guy responded with. He said, I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago, and I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Whew. It's one of those moments where you're just like, I wish I could take all those words I just said back. But we can do this whenever we make assumptions about people. He was assuming this guy's not a good parent. He is blind to what his kids are doing. Not thinking that there could possibly be another reason for why that is. So we, as image bearers, need to give people the benefit of the doubt. We need to be gracious. We need to be patient with people. We need longer nostrils. And finally, this may be the hardest we have to forgive others, even our enemies, even those we don't want to. 
I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, but man, that story convicts me. Where God tells Jonah to go preach to Nineveh, and Jonah's like, nope, don't want to do that. Because Nineveh was one of the worst enemies for Israel. They were these bloodthirsty, evil, barbarian-type people. And, you know, rightfully so, some of the literature that they pumped out during that time was very freaky. They were, they were a, a rough people. And Jonah was like, I don't want anything to do with them. So he actually flees to Tarshish, which for the known world, that was the furthest point away you could possibly go from Nineveh. He wanted nothing to do with it. But through some divine intervention and a fish swallowing him and spitting him up on the land, it kind of made Jonah come to his senses a little bit more. And then he ultimately goes to Nineveh and he preaches this message. Forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed. That was it. There wasn't a contingency. There wasn't something like, if you turn, I might spare you. It was just, you're going to be destroyed. And what happens is surprising. All of Nineveh, even their cattle somehow, repent. They all turn to Yahweh, and Yahweh relents. He doesn't do what he said he was going to do to them. And Jonah can't stand it. He is so angry about it. If we look at Jonah 4 verse 1, it says, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to Yahweh, Isn't this what I said, Yahweh, when I was still at home? That is what I was trying to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, I just knew it. I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God. Sounds familiar? Slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Yahweh, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than live. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Jonah could not stand the thought of God blessing his enemy. He couldn't stand it. And he was so sickened by it, he didn't even want to live in a world where God would show grace to somebody he doesn't like. And that sounds a little harsh and melodramatic, but I'm sure most of us have felt that way at some point in our lives, or maybe do right now. Maybe right now we have a Nineveh. Maybe right now we have people who we don't want anything to do with, and we might be praying for them, but it's not the things that they are wanting to be prayed over them, right? And we all have been wounded by people. Some of these might be really small and petty things. Some of these might feel life and death serious. Sometimes it takes a, a lifetime to really recover from the wounds that people have given us. But Jesus makes it very clear how we ought to be in Matthew 18. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Like thinking that's the cap? Like, surely, surely he's not going to say more than seven, right? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And those of us who really don't want to forgive start doing some napkin math, and we're like, okay, so I only have to forgive this person five more times before I hit that threshold, and then we're good. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, always forgive. Always forgive. And sometimes I think there might be some verses in Scripture that we just want to erase, <laughs> Like, we, like, Jesus, did you really have to say that? It, it's just so hard for us actually to absorb this and to follow it. This might be one of those verses for you. But it's so important that he even snuck it in the Lord's Prayer. How dare he? And then in Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15, again, this is another one you might want to erase. It says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their sins, neither will your Father forgive your sins. 
whoa. That's like a, a dagger in the heart, right? This is basically the parable of the unmerciful servant. After being forgiven such a huge debt ourselves, we then can't turn to somebody else and forgive them a smaller one. It's hard, and as Jonah said, it feels wrong sometimes. But when we keep the perspective of Jesus in mind, as he's being nailed to a cross, and being mocked and spat on, and suffocated on the cross, he's able to choke out these words. Father, forgive them. That's another level, right? Bearing the weight of sin of the world, saying, Father, forgive them. That's hard. But Jesus knows how important it is to forgive. Jesus knows how much healing there is in forgiveness because living with unforgiveness is a poison to our soul. It makes us bitter. It, it taints the world. It takes the perspective, the lens in which we view the world as this awful, awful place. And it's also just the worst kind of revenge, too, that you might be having for somebody else because they may be completely out of your life the person who has done these wounds to you. They may be completely out of your life, not even thinking about it. But yet that pain is still attached to you. And you can't get past it. So it makes you miserable while the other people may not even be thinking about it. It's giving that other person power from their sin. Forgiveness, it doesn't mean that that guilty party is not going to have any consequences. Because God doesn't let people get away with anything. There are consequences baked into every one of our actions. And it also doesn't mean that you have to be best friends with that person that you're forgiving. You don't have to even have a relationship with that person. But what forgiveness means is that you're letting go of those feelings of hatred and bitterness and resentment towards that person. And you're starting to restore the humanity into them again. That you're able to understand that God is wanting to redeem that person just as much as God is wanting to redeem yourself. And that's hard. It's really hard. And we know that God is the kind of God that wants all people to come to him and repent and turn to him. Even our enemies. And that might make our blood boil a little bit. But that is God's character. He delights in it. He delights in showing mercy. And we may not as much at all. And it's hard to accept. And we may want to erase this. We may want to ignore these words from Jesus. But we know that in forgiveness, as Jesus demonstrated, there is healing. Even if it is so painful to do it in the process. And by keeping Jesus to the forefront of our minds, we can do it, church. We can be like our gracious and compassionate God and truly forgive our Nineveh. Please pray with me. Lord, forgiveness is hard. And we don't want to do it a lot of times. Um, but we pray, may our enemy be our family. May those we come to despise, may we see them with the eyes that you see them. And we know in our life, we're probably somebody else's Nineveh. 
We've probably wronged other people that want nothing to do with us. Lord, help us see those areas in which we have burned people and help us to reconcile. Help us to be a people of long nostrils, of people who are patient and are able to forgive and to give people the benefit of the doubt and to see the rest of the world as you see them, as people who are worthy of redemption and people that you love in spite of their sin, just as you love us in spite of ours. Give us your eyes, give us your heart, give us your wisdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.